Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Mora. And this week, we will dive deep into which chapters best define certain characters in the Harry Potter series. We're going to focus on the Core 7 and then do a couple of others in bonus MuggleCast today. Before we get to that, though, it's time for a word from this week's sponsor, Usual Wines. With Thanksgiving and the cooler months arriving, you may have wine on the mind more than usual. I know I do. Personally, I love a good red when it's colder. Usual Wines are for the modern drinker. Each bottle from Usual Wines is 6.3 ounces, which is a heavy pour, or about a glass and a half of wine. Because of the single-serve format and bottle design, Usual is always fresh, meaning no more flat bubbly or stale rosé. Usual has a red blend, a rosé, and a sparkling white wine called Brut. They are serious about making a great wine. The wines come from California's Sonoma County, and they have no additives. On their site, you can read about the location, the soil, and the grapes they use to create a perfect wine. I've been obsessed with their red blend recently. It is so good. And these single-serve glass bottles are awesome. They look like science beakers, which actually makes them a lot of fun to pop open and enjoy. Usual Wines have a special holiday product, which was just released, Usual Reserve. This is their most special wine yet. Hailing from one of the most celebrated plots of land in all of Napa, this Cabernet Sauvignon is concentrated and rich with just enough grip. Gift it to someone special or keep it all for yourself. Go check out their website at usualwines.com and use our discount code MuggleCast for $8 off your first order and try your first glass on us. Again, visit usualwines.com and use our discount code MuggleCast for $8 off your first order and try your first glass on us. Okay, so a little PSA before we get into today's discussion. We will be off next week for Thanksgiving, but if you are missing MuggleCast during our off week, check out the Wall of Fame on MuggleCast.com to enjoy some of our favorite episodes or pledge to our Patreon, patreon.com slash MuggleCast, and have instant access to dozens of bonus MuggleCast installments, including a new one we are recording after today's show. Or... If you've done all that already, check out our latest Quizich Live. We recorded it this past weekend. It's Weasley Family Edition, and even though you can't play live with us, you can watch the trivia game and play by yourself, or maybe with some friends. You can find a link in today's show notes. Okay, time for our main discussion today. Which chapters best define characters in the Harry Potter series? And we got this idea from Jason, and I think, Eric, you had noticed it, right? Yeah, I saw Jason's post, too. It's, it's a cool idea that um, there's, a, there's one chapter. You know, a lot of these characters that we're talking about, the big seven, as it were, appear in multiple books, most books, in fact. But is there one chapter where we really get to know them as a person? The ups, the downs, the ins, the outs. What is it? And you mentioned seven particular characters, and J.K. Rowling did once call them the core seven. I can't remember the context she around said, that discussion. She said the big seven. It's very the important. big seven. It's so important oh. I put it in the dock. Uh, oh. The big seven. Yeah, but I, I always say the core seven, too, because we want to think the core four, which is that from Harry Potter, or is that someone else? The core, the core four? Uh, anyway. I don't know. I yeah, don't know. core four is something. Anyway, then the Fab Four is the Beatles. I'm confused. The big seven are Harry, Ron, Hermione, Neville, Luna, Ginny, and Draco. Okay, so let's start with Harry, and Laura is going to kick us off. Damn, Laura, yeah, this must have been tough. It is really hard. Um, I think, and I'm sure we're going to get many emails from people who potentially disagree, and that's totally good because I think that you could make an argument for a number of chapters throughout the series that you think really best define Harry's character. But the one that we went with today is from Deathly Hallows, The Forest Again. And the reason this felt like the natural choice is because it's all about Harry's acceptance of fate, right? It's him in a very short span of time coming to the realization that everything he has done and everything he has sacrificed up until this point is so that he can arrive at this moment where he sacrifices mm. himself to save everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really this beautiful thing. You know, Harry is literally the master of death 
And yet he walks into the forest knowing what lies ahead of him. And of course, he's a little scared, um, but it doesn't stop him from moving forward, but also making sure that he's completing Dumbledore's work of having like the chessboard set up properly, (laughs) as it were. I mean, even as he's leaving the castle, he reveals himself only to Neville, by the way, his counterpart in the series Mm. to say, hey, I'm going to do a thing just in case you got to kill the snake, right? Mm -hmm. And had he not done that, the ending might not have panned out the way that it did. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's really sort of adopting Dumbledore's plan and accepting his place in it, which is, you know, for one, it really solidifies the Christ narrative that we've talked a lot about before with Harry's sacrifice for others and sort of like the predestination of it all. But it also solidifies the sacrifice Harry has very nearly made so many times. I mean, he's been prepared to die multiple times throughout the series. Correct. Yeah. And this chapter immediately follows the prince's tale. So Harry's just heard it straight from the horse's mouth. He's heard it from Dumbledore about the little bit of soul that latched onto him, the fact that he's got to die, that Voldemort has to do it. And if I had just heard that, I'd be angry, you know, but Harry does what (laughs) is needed to do to save the school, to save all of his friends that are still alive. He's a true hero in this chapter. There will be time for anger later. (laughs) (laughs) But it's almost like he has this moment of realization, like, ah, yeah, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. You right. know, it, it was almost like he had this inkling that there was a missing piece to the puzzle and he gets it and he's like, well, damn. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, um, but even so, I, I love this moment where Harry's using the resurrection stone and he's chatting with his parents and Remus and Sirius and he has this childlike moment where he asks, does it hurt to die? And he even remarks like the the words felt childish as they fell out of his mouth. And I'm wondering, is this the first like, is this the real childlike moment we see from Harry? Because Harry never gets to be a child. He grew up in an abusive situation. He then had to adjust to a whole new society and culture. That's an interesting question. I think it is because we never get to see Harry experience a moment with his parents. So finally, he does have this moment and he's a newborn again or a toddler yeah. again. I'm trying to think of other moments. And the one that came to mind was it, it's more pronounced maybe in the movies because I can't remember back to Prisoner of Azkaban right now. But when he's talking with Sirius about potentially living with him, mm. I think that's also a very... Oh yeah, childlike moment. I can. Because he's oh, excited. when can I move in? <laughs> right. Oh yeah. But you're right, Laura. There, there's very few moments where we actually see Harry as a child, or or even as a you know a maturing teenager that would ask a lot of the the questions that we probably would growing up because he's just expected to be an adult in many respects, at least in the wizarding world throughout most of the series. I think it it, yeah. it helps too that Harry feels that every moment he's been given so far was something that he took, you know, because like he's alive because of this curse rebounding. So by going into the forest, he's sort of closing that chapter. Yeah. No, that's, it, it's a really good point. It's almost like this acceptance from Harry that like, well, I really... <laughs> shouldn't be alive right you know mm-hmm. I, I i was intended to die at some point it's just coming a little later than what voldemort <laughs> had originally intended other chapters show harry being heroic but this chapter makes him a hero I super agree. harry <laughs> <laughs> i think there's also you know speaking to sort of harry's acknowledgement of his weakness as well he is very tempted to reveal himself, you know, and, and like be around Ron and Hermione and reveal himself to Ginny. But he walks past them and he's like, I dare not look back because I know as soon as I do, it's over. You know, I'm not going to be able to let myself go. Yeah. If I, you know, if I reveal myself to them, if I'm around them because they're the people that I love the most. Mm. 
and I'm not going to be able to do it mm-hmm. if I see them. Right. And then we have a runner up here. Yeah, this is sort of not a serious contender. I, I can't. I certainly can't hope to compete <laughs> uh, with the forest again. But uh, I entertained the possibility as I was thinking of uh, coming up with some of these of having a runner up. And the chapter that I love, like reading about Harry most is from Prisoner of Azkaban, actually. It's chapter four, The Leaky Cauldron. And this is where it's the last couple weeks of summer break, and Harry is just in a room above the Leaky Cauldron, walking around Diagon Alley in the day, getting homework advice and free ice creams from Florian Fortescue. This is an, just a, a wonderful moment where Harry gets to be himself. And we find out kind of I don't know, what would Harry do if he was allowed to just wander the wizarding world for a little bit? Um, now, there are moments of, like, he's he's still reeling about seeing the Grimm recently. And the end of the chapter, he's eavesdropping on Mr. and Mrs. Weasley as they talk about Sirius Black coming specifically for him. So he's never fully escaped this whole hero's narrative of, I've got to, you know, somebody's wants me dead. But it is a, a lot of levity. And I just... I remember relating to Harry, I think, the most uh, in, in that chapter, because I just wanted to walk around all the shops and stare at a broom and be really excited. Yeah. Far cry from that other chapter, though. Yeah. Laura. <laughs> They're night and day. It's just like uh, Harry Light. I, I think, yeah, Laura got a, a monumental task here because literally we, we could probably name the chapters that Harry isn't in in the series. So to have to go through <laughs> and pick one, I think she did a great job. Did Eric do a good job, though? <laughs> no, uh, one thing that came into my <laughs> that's okay. It was a half-assed no, attempt. No, no, Eric did. No, I, I like the personal connection, though, uh, Eric, that you were talking about that you had to this chapter, knowing that Prisoner of Azkaban is your your favorite book. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm just you know giving you a hard time. But one other thing that came to mind for me about Harry, in terms of maybe we could make it a, a runner-up of sorts, is when he is teaching Dumbledore's army. I feel uh, like yes. his character, his personality really shines through as, as a teacher of his peers. And he is enabling them and equipping them with the tools and resources that they need throughout the rest of the series in order to ultimately defeat Voldemort. Agreed. Yep. All right. Our next character is Draco. Yeah. The, the good old- I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Look no further than, of course, the lightning struck tower- from Half-Blood Prince. I have a feeling a lot of these chapters are going to be towards the end of the book series as a whole because you really do get to have all these things revealed. You know, the character's really grown as a person over the book, so there's a chapter that is like the linchpin to understanding them, and uh, the Lightning Struck Tower is it. So this is where Draco's efforts from all of Harry's sixth year at Hogwarts come to a head, and Dumbledore is disarmed and awaiting death. But Draco fails to kill him. This chapter is as much about what Draco can do and chooses to do as much as what he fails to do. And I feel like we never see Draco more clearly than in this moment where he himself is fearing for his life from what Voldemort has said he's going to do if he fails to kill Dumbledore. And Dumbledore, for his part, is also making like great lengths, going to great lengths to forgive Draco in advance and show him kindness. And I think mm-hmm. that the way that Jake, uh, the way that Draco is written to kind of how awkward it is for him to accept like praise from Dumbledore, but also want to show him up and be like, "Yeah, I got you. I'm better than you." is like a really great dichotomy and it's a like I think it's the strongest Draco chapter. Yeah, and you can literally see him having this like um glass breaking moment where he's suddenly confronted with the reality of the ideology he's been raised with mm-hmm. and realizing oh god this is awful. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and, and so not only is he incapable of actually being a murderer, He's realizing his life has kind of been a lie. Yeah, he's been on the wrong track this whole time. Mm-hmm. It's not in his heart. Like it is his father's. Yeah, Draco, I mean, Dumbledore straight up offers him, join the this, the good side, Tom. will protect you more than anyone else can be protected. He's, he doesn't say we have cookies, but it's like, you know, we will take care <laughs> of you. 
Um, you know, and Drago just isn't expecting that at all because in his head, in order to be able to do what he's done all year and get the Death Eaters into the castle, he's had to really portray Dumbledore in his mind as this awful person. But when he sees that reality is very much not that, he fundamentally changes and becomes who he's going to be the rest of the series. So I think this is the moment where, yeah, Draco's still like a little shithead, like he's bragging about um, Rosmerta and using the coins that he got from Hermione uh, or the idea and all that stuff. But this is where I think his good side is is shown for the first time. Yeah, yeah he doesn't get too much of a redemptive arc in the series. I know we I'll have agree. a runner-up chapter yeah. here that you're going to talk about and i guess we could consider it the redemptive moment but i do feel that this chapter that that you chose definitely at least shows a different side to draco than what we had been expecting pretty much for the entirety of the series and i guess i'm kind of disappointed that he didn't get more of a redemptive moment but cursed child yeah, well, I was going to bring that <laughs> up, but child. I will also say for Draco in this chapter, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to do what he does, despite what the outcome of the situation is, to essentially stand down Dumbledore, disarm him for as much as Dumbledore is allowing the situation to unfold. Right. I think mm-hmm. we don't give Draco enough credit for... You know, he is essentially doing this for his family, for himself, and it's not an easy situation to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially we have to remember that Voldemort made this request because he knew Draco wasn't going to be able to do it. And it was all to punish Lucius. Right. Mm-hmm. That's actually confirmed again in the Prince's Tale, by the way. It's it's mm-hmm. 100% Dumbledore's like, yeah, he's just doing it to, to, kill, to, kill, to kill Draco, to watch him fail. So um, the idea of a runner up and I, and I like I, I really like Micah's point that there's a little bit too little of a redemptive art for Draco. But the reason for that is once the events of book six play out and we're into book seven, all hell is broken loose. And Voldemort himself is just sleeping over at Malfoy Manor like <laughs> Voldemort has moved in to the Malfoy's house. And so they're not able to kind of very comfortably play with the side of the living right now because they're like Voldemort's literally in their sitting room. So this chapter I've picked out Malfoy Manor, it's actually called it's chapter 23 of Deathly Hallows is when Harry, Ron and Hermione are taken by the snatchers to Malfoy Manor. And they kind of as a last minute disguise themselves. And Draco is put in the position of identifying uh, specifically Harry. And that is, is a real rough situation because obviously the Malfoys have to be very, very careful, but Draco kind of shows his colors in another way. And he says, I can't be sure that that is Harry. Like that's huge. And his mother does something similar a little later. I think that this chapter beyond any other is where he like actively chooses not to dunk on Harry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what I love about these portrayals of Draco too? I think you know, we all probably had a bully in school, right? And in those schooling years, it's really easy to sort of like villainize that bully and think like, oh, yeah, of all the terrible things this person is probably capable of doing. When the reality is, the answer is probably not. You know, people grow up, people change. Oftentimes, when people are bullies like this, it's a learned behavior because they themselves were bullied. So I like seeing this evolution of like Draco gets exposed to some real world problems. You know, he is seeing sort of the other side of the wizarding world for the first time or the other side of like the wizarding world battle. And he's realizing that they're not out to punish people the same way that his parents side of the war is, you know, when Dumbledore confronts him and is like, hey, we'll protect you. He's not expecting that because it's not what the dark side would offer. Right. Right. They would never truly offer that to anyone. So he's taken aback by it. And I think that moment, to Eric's credit, is really what sets Draco up to be able 
to have this kind of reaction in the Malfoy Manor chapter. Hmm. I really like that. It, it It's just real for Draco now. I, I don't know that yeah. it really was in this way, maybe up until the end of Half-Blood Prince for him. He, to your point, Laura, he's really seeing the forest through the trees. He, it's It's really hitting him the impact that these decisions can have on people's lives. If if he does say with 100% certainty in this moment that that is Harry, Ron, and Hermione, it's game over. And he's likely killed three of his classmates. So right. I think it speaks to the fact that maybe Draco does have a conscience deep down <laughs> and, and cares about the decisions that he makes, especially after what's happened at the end of Half-Blood Prince. He probably feels responsible for Dumbledore's death. And you know the the book essentially opens up with with the death of one of his professors right above his dining room table. Never gonna uh, eat so again. it's it's a lot for him to have to take on. It's a lot of responsibility for a young kid. And yeah, th- this is a pivotal moment in the series because if he does say yes, these are my classmates, it, it is game over. Yeah, and like he's in all seven books, okay? And Draco is kind of like a a pissant for most of them. Like you're like, Oh, who's created the Potter sucks badges. Of course it's Malfoy. You're just like, what will he get up to now? But you got to realize and it's really the the curtain is not pulled back until these chapters that we're discussing, but Draco, that was like the prejudice that he grew up on. Right. That was, these were the, the kind that he was the kid that his parents shaped him to be. But now kind of all that falls aside and he's really choosing who he wants to be. Right. Because all these insults he lobs at Harry over the years, they're mean, but they're not evil. And then in these later books, he's tasked with becoming evil, and it's just not in him. Oh, dead body floating over the table? Hmm, not for me, guys. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's move to the next character, Hermione. And so Eric actually mentioned that the chapters that we were going to bring up today might be later in the books. The two characters that I have in today's discussion, I picked early chapters, actually both in Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. So Hermione, her defining chapter, in my opinion, is Sorcerer's Stone, chapter 10, Halloween. Hermione's fast thinking moves and her intelligence and the unwavering loyalty to Harry's mission are a common theme throughout the books. And it all begins in this chapter. You'll all probably remember after being insulted by Ron, Hermione runs to the bathroom and gets stuck there with the troll. When Ron and Harry come to save her, despite just being made fun of, she lies about the troll situation to McGonagall in order to protect Harry and Ron. And as noted by Harry in this chapter, it is out of character for her to lie. And then after each of them had each other's back in this chapter... We get this important line that has always stuck with me. Quote, from that moment on, Hermione Granger became their friend. There are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other, and knocking out a 12-foot mountain troll is one of them. Love it. Mm -hmm. And this chapter, this moment, sets off a series of smart moves and sacrifices, and oh my god, Hermione did that (laughs) moments in which she's just looking out for the fam, defeating Devil Snare figuring out how the basilisk moved around the school, being trusted with the time turner, which in turn saved Buckbeak and Sirius, teaching Harry Akio, which saved his ass in the Triwizard Tournament <laughs> and in other instances, kicking off the idea for Dumbledore's army, all of her assistance with the hunt for the Horcruxes, and of course, so many more examples. And all of these things, again, are, quote, things you can't share without ending up liking each other moments. So I just feel like in Halloween... In the chapter Halloween, Hermione shows how she'll be in the rest of the series. She's vulnerable, but strong, quick thinking, and willing to take risks and even lie. That's great. Yes. A liar. Yeah. She's such a liar. <laughs> <laughs> she lies when you, she needs to. Hindsight is twenty twenty, of course. But why did Hermione just say, I was using the bathroom and screamed out for help and Ron and Harry just happened to be walking by? Because the distance you have to cover from the Great Hall where they were to the bathroom. But she could have just been using the bathroom. She didn't have to say, I decided I was going to go take on the mountain troll. (laughs) Yeah, I think part of it, too, was that she was in the bathroom crying. So she wasn't at the Halloween feast. And then it opens this can of worms of like, why weren't you at the feast? 
Right. True. You know? Plus, she can just and, Evanesco everything away. So it's not right. like she really <laughs> needs to use the bathroom. And, and she I was caught off guard. There's got to be a bathroom closer to the Great Hall right. than this one was. So if she really, you know, had to go during the Halloween feast. Actually, no. Hogwarts is a bathroom nightmare. There's only one bathroom <laughs> in the entire castle. You have to run there sometimes. It's terrible. And it rotates. So like on the on, on the even hours, it's the boys' bathroom. On the odd hours, it's the girls. You know what I love about this too? This is actually representative of Hermione showing a really significant amount of character development early on in the series. Right. You know, for some characters, we don't get these kinds of pivotal switches until, you know, midway or even later in the series. But we see Hermione, who is so strict and like so, um, you know, attached to the rules and the way that things should be. But in this moment, she's able to zoom out and see the bigger picture and understand that there are sometimes more important things than rules. And I just wonder, you know, had they not had this moment early on in the series, not only would their friendship not have developed the way that it did, but Hermione might not have had this revelation that rules are not always the most important thing mm. until much later in the series. Great yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, definitely. When I when I think about what defines what chapter defines a character, I'm just thinking about that first moment that set off a series of events. And I just loved, like I said, that line where, you know, from that moment on, Hermione became their friend. Well, and I and think it was that's true. very important is that she showed who she was very early on and it was just consistent the rest a of the A liar. <laughs> no. Well, she showed that she had a morality, right? She wasn't oh, yes. she wasn't this hard, you know, always need to follow the rules kind of person. She has an internal compass of what is right and wrong. And when Harry and Ron risk their necks to come and save her, she then implicates herself and gives herself some of their like some she bears some of the guilt uh, yeah. for, for what occurred and she recognizes it and owns it. Yeah, I think this is also a good trio chapter, too, if I'm being honest, because sort of like the combination of events here and characterizations really mirror a lot of sort of the trio as an arc throughout the series. Like Ron is always hurting Hermione's feelings. <laughs> pissing her off <laughs> and Harry's usually like the mediating factor, but Ron always comes around in the end so that they can all work together towards whatever mission it is they need to complete. So I kind of love that. This is sort of like a, a mini like meta representation of the trio throughout the series. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Ron and he's our next character. I did. And the chapter that I chose for Ron is from Deathly Hallows as well. And it's the Silver Doe chapter. I feel like this is probably the predictable choice for Ron, but <laughs> there is so much to dig into in this one and so many areas in which Ron really sort of has this culminating moment where he overcomes a whole heck of a lot. Um, so we have to remember, this is Ron's re-entry back into Deathly Hallows after the biggest blowout of his friendship with Harry and Hermione. Mm -hmm. He abandons them in a tent in the woods, and he's like, deuces, I'm out. <laughs> um, and he's gone for a while. They don't know where he is. Harry is following this silver doe throughout the it's it's a patronus and he's following it through the forest of dean we later learn that this was snape's patronus leading him to the sword of gryffindor mm. but harry arrives at the lake and he realizes the sword is at the bottom of the lake why snape put it there i i don't know um <laughs> but he you know realizes he has no choice but to dive in and get this and ultimately the Horcrux tries to kill Harry, and it's Ron who saves him, and it's Ron who's actually able to retrieve the Sword of Gryffindor. So this is also, you could probably argue, Ron's one of Ron's most Gryffindor moments, the fact that he's able to retrieve the sword. Yeah. And, you know, Harry, we have to realize Harry's literally only able to survive because of Ron. Right. 
Ron has all these flaws. He has his jealousy. He has his insecurities about being second best to his best friend. Um, And obviously the Horcrux really amplified these insecurities. And that's what was sort of like the the straw that broke the camel's back and led to him leaving. But he came back when it mattered, right? He was there when Harry needed him the most. And that, I think, is something we recognize of Ron throughout the whole series. But this was perhaps um, the moment when Harry truly did need him the most. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned the sword of Gryffindor because we only see three characters use that sword or be able to essentially get it. And they're Harry, Ron, and Neville. Nice. And yeah, it's just, it's a great moment for Ron. It's a redemptive moment for him too in this chapter. Agreed. Mm -hmm. I also really enjoy the contrast that, you know, the Horcrux is what drove Ron to abandon the mission initially, right? Mm -hmm. And it's Ron who's able to rescue Harry from the Horcrux trying to murder him. You know, again, another example of when the chips are down, Ron is there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, kind of answering your question about why Snape put it at the bottom of the lake with the sword, uh, Dumbledore, or more specifically Portrait Dumbledore, tells Snape uh, that the, the sword needs to be taken under conditions of need and valor. So it's actually Ron who exhibits those traits, uh, right? you know, which is really, really cool. But so I agree with you. Like there's something with Ron, Harry, Neville. These are the Gryffindors like through and through. And then, of course, this is the chapter where we see Ron destroying the Horcrux locket. Mm -hmm. And this is an extraordinary moment of payoff for all of his character development throughout the series. We have to remember that... We see Ron's deepest desire in the mirror of Erised in book one, right? And and this is also a really great example of ring theory. Um, so we see Ron in book one seeing himself as head boy and Quidditch captain, the best of all his brothers. And in direct contrast, we see Tom Riddle Horcrux Locket taunting him about all of these things. You know, your mother would have preferred a daughter, your second best to your best friend, the woman that you love prefers your best friend over you. It's literally like Ron is looking in a reverse mirror of Erised in a way when he's dealing with this. And it would have been very easy for him to crumble, right? Um, Because not only is he seeing all of this, the friend that he feels second best to is sitting right there. Yeah. And Ron has the sword of Gryffindor. There's that moment where Harry's like, oh, crap. (laughs) He's coming at me. (laughs) Um, But it's really this metaphorical vanquishing of his insecurities that we've seen plague Ron throughout the series. And I would argue Ron would really need to have this moment in order for the trio to ultimately be successful in their mission, mm. right? Like until Ron got all over all of these insecurities for sort of like the greater good of what he and Hermione and Harry are trying to do, I don't think they would have been nearly as successful. Yeah. I, I really like that you said that because it reminded me also, you were talking about ring theory in Sorcerer's Stone. It, it's Ron who essentially sacrifices himself in order for Harry to move on in that wizard's chess game. Yeah. Oh, great point. Yeah. And uh, he's not doing exactly the same thing here, but you're right. In order for them to move forward, he needs to take this action. And it was the same way in Sorcerer's Stone. We have more Harry Potter characters to discuss today. But first, Literati has returned to sponsor this week's episode of MuggleCast. You know, one of the most incredible things about this show is that we, the hosts, and you, the listener, have grown up together. But unlike us on the panel, some of you have kids now, and that is awesome. And if you haven't already, we can't wait for the day that you introduce them to Harry Potter. But there's a whole other world out there of excellent children's books, and that's where Literati comes in. Literati Kids is a subscription book club that sends five beautiful children's books to your door each month, handpicked by experts. 
Literati Kids has book clubs for children ages 0 to 12, and each club has age-appropriate selections tailored to what your child needs. Every month, you'll get a box of five expertly chosen kids' books with themes like mystery, adventure, STEM, and history. These are soul-enriching books, handpicked by leaders in child education. Gift subscriptions are available for one, three, six, or 12 months of books. It's a great way to keep the holiday magic going through 2021, whether you're gifting a niece, a grandson, a friend's child, or your own kid. Unlike other kids' book clubs, Literati Kids lets you try before you buy. Keep only the books your child loves and return the rest for free. I signed my sister and her son, Sweet Trey, up for Literati, and she was thrilled with the books for him. My sister's a kindergarten teacher, and she hadn't seen any of these books before, so that was a big deal for her. And she thought they were all great titles, and Trey, of course, loved them. Go to literati.com slash mugglecast for 25% off your first two orders and pick your kid's book club gift today. Remember, no one else has kids' book clubs like these. Only at literati.com slash mugglecast can you get 25% off your first two orders and receive five incredible kids' books curated by experts delivered to your door every month. That's literati.com slash mugglecast. Make your little one's holiday season unforgettable this year. None of you have kids, right? I wasn't wrong at the top uh, of that. That I know of. Um, that we know of. Yeah. yeah. Okay. To my knowledge. <laughs> just yeah, checking. I don't. Just Mike want and I plead to be the accurate. fifth. We're like, yeah. Well, I would hope Laura would have a better idea, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ...than Eric and I, but... You know, you never know. Just checking. You never know. All right. If you did, I'd be happy to sign them up for Literati. But... Oh, thank you. Oh, good to know. Aww. Good to know. Yeah. That's, just keep that I'll, in mind I'll for the future. keep that in mind. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. So turning back to our discussion now, let's talk about Ginny. Yes, I like the uh, maligned characters. It's funny that Ginny should be part of the big seven after what the movie what the movies did to her character. But uh, but I will argue Ginny Weasley is as important as the rest. Um, but the big chapter for her is really Christmas on the closed board from Order of the Phoenix. And this is the one Harry's being very, you know, uh, angsty. And he saw oh, you're all talking about me. And she says, we wanted to talk to you, Harry, but as you've been hiding ever since we got back. And he says, I didn't want anyone to talk to me. And she says, well, that was a bit stupid of you, seeing as you don't know anyone but me who's been possessed by you-know-who, and I can tell you how it feels. This is where Ginny stands up for herself, but she's also not afraid to confront Harry in, in terms of what he, how he has been behaving toward his friends. And she's right. She has crucial information which immediately makes Harry feel better because she's able to rule out like straight up possession for him. And, mm. you know, his only response to this is I forgot. He he just like, <laughs> he doesn't know what to say, but Ginny has really kind of proven herself that she's going to be an ally to him, that she has critical information and that he's not the only one going through that. And I don't know if that doesn't give you guys tingles, but it gives me tingles like, you know, yeah, Ginny kind of just gets through to Harry and it's like, it's not all like you are not the only person suffering. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I was moved by this moment as well, reading it for the first time in the book, because Harry so desperately needs somebody he, he can connect with and who can understand where he's coming from. And Ginny just puts himself out there, puts herself out there. Yeah. yeah it, it reminds me and I can't do the impersonation, so I'm not going to. But uh, kindergarten cop when Arnold Schwarzenegger turns to one of the kids and just says, stop whining. Like that, <laughs> stop whining. That's what, yeah, that's what it reminds me of. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, but I assume that's how it sounded. Stop whining. We can find the clip. We can find the clip. <laughs> you know, I like this moment too, because it kind of serves as a reminder for the reader, right? Like, yeah, we haven't, you know, since Chamber of Secrets up until this point, we haven't seen Ginny have any like major presence in the core story right so it's a good moment of like oh yeah like she this girl was traumatized <laughs> at 11 years old now she's involved in the plot well, and to think that think of about the growth that had to occur in those three-year period though now that she's like past the trial or she's able to talk about it i guess um but she uses it for 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 harry to, to help him diagnose what's wrong with him she uses her experience and very quickly rules out because he's not like missing time that he could be possessed and it makes him feel better yeah it it reminds me of and i think we talked about this when we did the chapter by chapter for order of the phoenix but 
you know, a lot of times when people are going through things and they're frustrated and they're upset, they have a tendency to lash out at those most close to them who actually care about them. And I think it's such an important moment for Ginny here because she's able to, you know, calm Harry and make him realize that he's not alone. And yeah. I think that's super important for him in in Order of the Phoenix, particularly because he is going through so much and he doesn't know a lot of what's going on. But yet in Ginny, he has somebody who has had a similar experience. He just needs to shut up and listen to her for a minute. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's peak Ginny. She soothes and calms Harry, but she does it by like asserting herself. So that's pretty neat. And they quickly put the fight aside to start exchanging info. Yeah. As yeah. highlighted in this passage. Mm -hmm. Eric, I, I actually do have one honorable mention here for Ginny. Ooh. It came from Jason himself, who gave birth to this uh, discussion. Oh, wonderful. And he said he was listening to the audiobooks by Stephen Fry, and uh, he calls out chapter 24 of Half-Blood Prince, Sectum Sempra. And he said, I think this chapter really embodies Ginny's character. She tells Hermione off, which is yeah. the first time in the books we see her standing up for Harry against one of the trio. And her and Harry share their first kiss in the common room with everyone present. This is completely Ginny to me. Loyal, independent, not a care in the world to other people judging her or what she does. That's a good contender. That it, it, I'll I'll agree with that a hundred percent. She her line to Hermione specifically is, "Oh, don't pretend you suddenly understand understand Quidditch." Yeah, and it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's hugely cutting. It's a very cutting thing. Okay, let's look at Neville now. So we talked about the sword a few minutes ago, and we're going to, again, in a little bit. I have two chapters here. So I think one chapter that defines Neville is one in which he first shows the courage that led him to face Voldemort and kill Nagini. And that first chapter, to me, is Sorcerer's Stone, chapter 16, through the trap door. He stands up to Harry, Ron, and Hermione as they are uh, heading for Fluffy and the Sorcerer's Stone. Neville, as everybody remembers, asks the trio where they're going, and Hermione, again, lies to protect themselves. <laughs> She's a liar, that one. <laughs> and Neville threatens to fight them. I'll fight you. <laughs> you have to remember that earlier in the book, he was told by Ron to stand up to people, and Neville mm -hmm. reminds, reminds Ron of this in this moment. And if you just put yourself in Neville's shoes for a moment, he's standing up to relatively new classmates in a school that's brand new to him and doesn't want anyone to get in trouble and he's still attacked for it. That takes a lot of courage. I would not have the courage that Neville does to stand up to these people who recently came into his life and uh, tell them to to not leave. Oh, I mean, and these are the few one. people, these are the few people that are actually nice to him. Right, right. Yeah. These Everyone are the else treats guys. him like garbage. These guys treat him either indifferently or friendly and he has to tell them that they yeah. can't do what they want to do. Yeah. yeah, that's I a got great your point. remember all, buddy. Remember that? <laughs> Maybe not. Remember <laughs> all that? You stand up to me? You stand up to me, Harry Potter? What? Another big moment for Neville was continuing to hold the Dumbledore's army meetings in Deathly Hallows. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, Dumbledore recognized that bravery at the end of Sorcerer's Stone and awarded him some house points, which <laughs> helped them out big time. But then, of course, this all led to Deathly Hallows, the flaw in the plan, and standing up to Voldemort. This is one of the toughest and bravest situations imaginable. Voldemort could have killed him, and the Sorting Hat recognized Neville's bravery by giving him the Sword of Gryffindor, which led to Neville killing Nagini in that epic moment. And again, he was risking death for the greater good. So again, I just look at what where did Neville begin? Where was that first moment of bravery and right. where did it lead him? And it was these two chapters. I love that. I do love how, you know, Dumbledore gives Neville the winning 10 points in Sorcerer's Stone that ultimately pushes Gryffindor over the top. And we all kind of laugh about that. We're like, oh, boy, Neville got 10 points. <laughs> but it really does mirror also that Neville gets to be the one who deals the final blow to the Horcruxes and frees the way for Harry to finish Voldemort off. Yeah. He teed him up. Yep. And also big 
standing up moments in both books, standing up to the trio in Sorcerer's Stone, but now standing up to Voldemort in yeah. Deathly Hallows. Different but sides a great of the deal coin. More to stand up to your friends. Don't they like light the hat on fire while Neville's wearing it? Or yeah, something? yeah. Yes. Like, they didn't do that on. in the in the movie. They should have done. I don't get why they didn't do it. it would have been. I know. Uh, it would have been way more horrifying. I forget it happens because the movie didn't do it. But I mean, that's insane. And Neville doesn't have the special protection that Harry has for like against Voldemort. But he's standing up to him. He is. He is talking back. It's just unbelievable. Instead, I'm looking for you know, fan art now. We uh, got a sorting hat on we got fire a from, from <laughs> yeah, Voldemort. We got the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Instead of lighting somebody's head on fire, he hugs a student. You gotta kill people with <laughs> kindness sometimes. Uh, this is why Deathly Hallows Part Two disappoints me as a movie. I mean, oh. not the only reason, but there. You should see it in 3D, Laura. You'll change it. I did see it in 3D. Oh, no. <laughs> and then I and then you know watching it normally, I'm like, oh, these effects look stupid. Not <laughs> I in hate 3D. 3D so much. <laughs> By the way, I'm looking for Sorting Hat on Fire fan art, and there isn't any. What the heck? I mean, this is just Google Images. So it's a horrifying scene. I'm glad they wouldn't do that. Like, oh, all right. Well, and hopefully the Sorting Hat had enough magic in it that it protected Neville. No long-lasting burn marks or anything. Okay, so uh, one more character yeah. in the core seven. The, the, what is it? The big seven? The big seven. Big the seven. big seven. Sounds like a uh, college sports conference. Yeah, you would. It does. Would and the that. core four are baseballers. I looked that up. They're New York Yankees. <laughs> but so somebody said what... on Patreon that you might be thinking of Fantastic Beasts, Eric. Oh, core four, Fantastic probably. Beasts. Thank you. Mm. Thank you, person. Thank you. That was Faith. Thank you, Faith. All right, well, I'll... Uh, Try and bring us home here with Luna. Finally, Micah has one. Jeez. Yeah, I know. I've just been commenting on everyone else's. <laughs> so uh, for Luna, I picked Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 38, The Second War Begins, the final chapter of the fifth book. And uh, Luna really reveals herself in this chapter to Harry. Uh, she's brutally honest about her own personal experiences, but she does it in her own calming and quirky kind of way. She talks about how other students refer to her as Looney Lovegood, and she also shows her attitude is relatively good, despite the fact that other students have been stealing her items and hiding them around Hogwarts. Uh, but I think probably the most defining moment for her in this chapter is when she's talking to Harry about the death of her mother. She has this really strong belief that she's going to see her mother again and that those who have left us are just beyond the veil. Remember, this is just after Harry has lost Sirius. He's had that infuriating conversation with Dumbledore He's running around the castle to different people trying to find out if it's possible for him to reach Sirius again. He talks actually with nearly headless Nick, you know, not, um, or actually just prior to this. But it's Luna who he runs into who actually gives him the most comfort. And uh, I think it begins the healing process for Harry following Sirius's death uh, because it's a realization that he's not alone in his feeling of loss. And uh, I think it's it's the true beginning of Harry and Luna's friendship. Not that they weren't friends before, but I think this really solidifies it moving forward into Half-Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows. And most importantly, they bond over something that Ron and Hermione couldn't possibly understand at this point. Right. Yeah. That's the key. It's that crucial mm -hmm. element. Well, you know, when I was thinking of a Luna chapter, I thought... Is it possible that a chapter without the person in it could be their defining chapter? Because hmm. as a runner up, I came up with the chapter Xenophilius Lovegood from Deathly Hallows, where they go to her home and she's not there, but you still learn a lot about her. So I asked hmm. my girlfriend, Meg, I was like, am I on to something here? And she says, well, yeah, we see the place she grew up in. So that informs her character, the dirigible plums and the oddities. It shows us her past. Um, and also we see that artwork that she's done. I forgot about this. She painted Harry, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, and Neville's faces on her bedroom ceiling and the word friends that links them. Uh, like, I just 
forgot that she had done this. And I'm like, Luna's really, you know, this this underscores what she said uh, earlier about it being like having friends that she really cares about them. And then also, if you see the way Zeno, I guess, particularly in the next chapter, which is the tale of three brothers, bends over backwards to trap the trio because of his love for Luna. Luna's been taken from him and he wants her back. I think certain characters can be defined by how other characters feel about them. And Xenophilius's love for his daughter, um, especially after, you know, losing her mom, as Micah mentioned, you know, I, I think it really just paints a really big portrait of Luna without Luna actually being present. So I thought there was, I thought there was something there. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think the Friends mural really speaks volumes about Luna's character. Um, because Luna's not stupid, right? Like she's, you know, you can make the argument that she's quirky and, and maybe she's kind of like up in the clouds, but she knows what other people think of her. She's not dumb. And even though the trio garners more respect for her after book five, you never really see very many moments where they're thinking of Luna, you know, like she doesn't really cross their minds too terribly often. <laughs> so this is and the most I'm depressing like, chapter in the book, actually. <laughs> well, it, it is kind of sad. It makes me angry on Luna's behalf because she's such a loyal friend, even though these people haven't always been the best friends to her. This is no. like the Sistine Chapel, a monument to their amazing friendship, and nobody else like would ever do this. Yeah, it it, it is kind of depressing that that they don't. I, if anyone, I think Harry shows her the most uh, out of out of any of the trio, but she is fiercely loyal to them. And thinking about you know the hat that she creates for the Quidditch match you know her willingness to help harry out in deathly hallows to solve you know one of the horcruxes uh, but the the reason why i picked the chapter that i did was you know she's not present in it for more than maybe two pages but those two pages are so impactful in terms of helping harry heal not that mm -hmm. he's ever going to get over sirius's death but i right. think the fact that he was able to connect with somebody that was totally unexpected um, really did help to form a bond between them that maybe even goes a bit beyond friendship. Um, and yeah, I, I, I do think though, the, the chapter that you mentioned here, Eric, it, it's interesting to look at it from the perspective of not having somebody present. Could a chapter define them? I think so. But I think you get a really good insight into who Luna is because you're in her home. You're right, and and yeah, this also. Uh, I mean, the chapter is named Xenophilius Lovegood. This tells a lot about him too and how yeah. much he cares for his daughter. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, that's the big seven, Woo! and we're not done yet because we actually are going to talk about some defining chapters for other characters in the series, including Fred and George, Fudge. <laughs> Fudge, Fudge, McGonagall, <laughs> and a couple of others. But first, it's time for a word from our final sponsor this week, BetterHelp. If you have something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, there's someone out there who is professionally trained to help you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. All of us here at MuggleCast know the benefits of therapy, and that's why we know that you should be turning to a therapist, too, during your time of need. What's great about BetterHelp is that it makes it so easy to jump into therapy. You can speak with a therapist right from wherever you're listening to MuggleCast via your phone, and the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule a weekly video or phone session so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as you do with traditional therapy. It's wherever you are in the moment. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today, so get started. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MuggleCast. That's Better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. 
We have a special offer for MuggleCast listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash MuggleCast. That's BetterHelp.com slash MuggleCast for 10% off. Make sure you use that link so they know we sent you. And thank you for supporting the show by supporting our sponsors. Okay, so we turned to patrons. We said, what other chapters define certain characters? Laura, kick us off. Yeah, so this one comes from Jeffrey. Jeffrey says about Fred and George, they always make me smile when they turn up in the books. So my defining chapter for them, or so my defining chapter is for them. I think the chapter that describes them perfectly is chapter 10 of Prisoner of Azkaban, The Marauder's Map. We see in this chapter that Fred and George are mischievous, dropping Dung Bomb's son, resourceful, they figure out how to work the map, smart, they explain the map to Harry, funny, the way they tell the story of getting the map, and most important, when push comes to shove, they put other people's needs ahead of their own. They literally tell Harry his need is greater than theirs. What we also see here is that Fred and George are masters of showing up when they're needed to add just enough to make the story better, though they never want it to be all about them. They are the ultimate supporting characters. Aw, I I love love that. Fair point. Mm -hmm. I I would like to see at some point from somebody separate defining chapters, one for Fred and one for George. I want to see that because they, this is perfect for them as a group, but I wonder what each characters would be on their own. Somebody said to me recently, like Fred and George have totally different personalities. They're often together. But they're they have little there are differences. You can tell them apart. So I don't know. We're going to see on tomorrow's Quizich, too, because maybe I have a quote and you're going to have to figure out if it was Fred or George that said it. So you're a tough quiz master, Eric. (laughs) Uh, I I would say probably one honorable mention here is in order of the Phoenix. I think it's chapter 28, Snape's Worth's Memory, when they set off the fireworks initially. Oh, and just the school just goes into complete and utter chaos. It just shows their <laughs> ability to do magic. And, the, you know, all of the teachers are kind of on their side and that they're not working with Umbridge to help remove everything from the school. So I, I think it just, it gives you insight into the fact that they're a lot smarter than I think they're giving credit for. Hmm. Yeah. The next one, which we joked about earlier, is Cornelius Fudge sent in by Charlotte. And uh, she says, I think chapter one, the other minister of Half-Blood Prince really sums up Fudge across the board. In this chapter, we get a condensed synopsis of the past few years through the eyes of the Muggle Prime Minister as he drops in to inform about Sirius's escape, dragons entering the country for the tournament, and inevitably his resignation. I feel it fully encompasses his arc and shows his level of incompetence in a new and interesting light. Interesting. I was just shocked that somebody would pick Fudge of all characters. That's why I was making fun of it. <laughs> I, I love this one. I think it's 100% accurate. The way he gradually, like, he just has no respect for the Muggle minister at all, but is obligated to tell him about the Death Eaters escaping and all this other stuff. But he passes it off as, oh, no, jolly good time. Yes, I guess this happened. (laughs) I love how you kind of sounded like Olivia Coleman's Queen Elizabeth when you did that. Oh, God, I'm going to watch some videos. I'm going to get really good at that impression. Uh, (laughs) So funny. But uh, well, here's a character I think deserves to have this kind of discussion centered around them, Hagrid. So from Julianne, who says, I think chapter five of book one. Oh, Andrew, she's just like you. She's like, ah, these characters tell us who they are very early on. Yes. Chapter five of book one defines Hagrid as a character. We see him transport Harry from the muggle world to the wizarding world, and he introduces him and carries him on to Hogwarts as well. Throughout the books, we see Hagrid carry people. He takes the first year students across the lake at Hogwarts. He carries Dumbledore's body at his funeral, and he carries Harry at the end of book seven. He is strong and kind and someone who cares for all creatures. He's the perfect person to carry people and sometimes their burdens along their journeys. Oh, that's beautiful. This one's from Robbie. I think McGonagall was absolutely defined by career advice. It's clear how seriously she takes her role as teacher and head of Gryffindor. She is realistic about Potter's academic past. She also makes clear to Harry that she does have his best interests in mind. 
Oh, and of course, she is wonderfully insulting to Umbridge. Plus one in the McGonagall rocks tally. Hashtag Umbridge sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Well timed. Well timed. Oh, that old sound effect. Yeah, I I agree with that. I I thought about McGonagall and immediately it it was career advice because she stands up to tyranny. She says, I will teach this boy to become an Auror if it's the last thing I do. I mean, it's unbelievable. Also, one of my favorite chapters, just because we're looking towards the future. It's nice to think about Harry's post-Hogwarts career. The only other chapter that comes to mind for me was in Deathly Hallows when she battles Snape. Yep. Or how about, do your duty to the school? (laughs) (laughs) And then the very odd line that uh, they added into the movie. I've always wanted to do that spell. Ugh, <laughs> that I was hated terrible. that line. Why? We it was a light so bad. Moment. That's not we a needed, McGonagall line. We needed a light moment during that all was the like dark. a. That was like a borrowed line from Sister Act when she was the. Uh, oh, whatever. I liked it. It it's just as cheesy, if not more than I love magic. <laughs> Okay, that's cheesy. They're both pretty bad. Like, I'm sure McGonagall always wanted to do that spell, but she would never (laughs) relish doing it at the cost of so many lives. Right. Mm. Well, maybe she... No, she was fired up. She was hyped. (laughs) Whatever, y'all. Well, you know, earlier, Laura, you brought up the possibility of a trio overall chapter, and actually somebody named Laura submitted that to us. How weird. Hmm. Oh, Laura M. I love her. She's great. Yeah, she's great. Laura M. says, uh, when I think of the trio overall and their friendship, I always think of the Devil's Snare chapter and the Troll chapter in book one. If you also ask me what chapter reminds me of Ron and Hermione, again, the Devil's Snare one. The second Ron said the line, are you a witch or not? I knew they were end game. <laughs> Yeah, it is such a good moment. And also another example of how the movies robbed Ron of all of his great moments and gave them to Hermione. I think you may be onto something there. Okay, so that was today's discussion. That was a lot of fun. Thanks to the patrons over at patreon.com slash mugglecast who submitted their responses as well. We have this links line benefit over on our Patreon where we pretty regularly ask listeners to sound off on upcoming discussions and you always come through. Thank you. And thank you for supporting us. It's time for Quizage. Last week's question, Riss Ifens, who plays Xenophilius Lovegood in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, shares a birthday with this Canadian quiz show host. You must answer in the form of a question. This quizich was, of course, uh, made and composed to honor the late George Alex Trebek. And uh, we had everyone write in, who is Alex Trebek? Who indeed was he? Congratulations <laughs> to... Was I mean, he was, he was just an amazing man yeah. who, gone too soon, uh, he had cancer, and really yeah. pushed the boundaries and really inspired generations of people to be better and and learn and listen. Yeah, real. it seemed like a really nice guy, television icon. He was filming new episodes up until about two weeks before his death. Mm-hmm. And uh, his final episode of Jeopardy is actually going to be airing on Christmas. So that'll be a very bittersweet day for Jeopardy viewers. Wow. But uh, yeah, shares a birthday with... Um... Siphons. Correct answers were submitted by Samwise, Ali Frega, Landon, Michelle, Darren, Bort Voldemort, Snape, Didn't Lie, Sarah A.K. Weensy, Scott, 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 Sub Sarah, <laughs> Sydney, Laura, Lady Catherine, and Jason. Snape didn't lie. They trying to tell us something? Next week's question. Who did Snape tell off for using the word mudblood during the chapter The Prince's Tale? And who was it said about? Submit your answer to us over two on- Two-part question. Yeah. Well, two-part question. And uh, also relates to this episode's bonus MuggleCast. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So for this for this episode's bonus MuggleCast, we're going to be talking about The Prince's Tale as a chapter because it may be the defining chapter for both Dumbledore and Snape. Is it? Is it not? We'll figure it out. But uh, that uh, I reread that chapter recently. And that is why we get this Quizzes question. 
you can submit your answer over on our Twitter and use hashtag Quizage. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're username MuggleCast on all three. If you have any feedback about today's discussion, email MuggleCast at gmail.com. Send us a voice memo to that address as well. Just keep it about a minute long, if you don't mind. Or use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. Or call us one nine two zero three muggle That's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. I say the number both ways every episode because we have to brag that we have a phone number with the word muggle in it yep you know you do (laughs) we used to have magic right but yes we lost that yeah and google voice actually stopped offering this feature where you can pick a number that also makes a word Mm. so we got in early we're lucky we would also appreciate if you took a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to MuggleCast so you can help us be discovered by new listeners. Also, if you want to support us further, join us at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. To thank you, you will receive magical benefits in return, including a personalized video thank you message from one of the four of us, ad-free MuggleCast, bonus MuggleCast, access to our live streams, and much more. Seriously, much more. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Happy Thanksgiving, and please know that we are especially thankful for you and another year in this amazing fandom. See you all in two weeks. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Goodbye. Goodbye.